part of the reason for doing this is actually because of the text that we're in. Uh, to just kind of switch things up, to take kind of a lighter look, if you will, at the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10. So I'm going to read this thing, and once again, it'll be a little trippy, right? You got some images and stuff going on, and you're just like, what in the world is happening with all of this? Uh, but remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It's dream and vision genre, and so... Uh, we'll look at the specifics of how that helps us as we do a little review. Uh, but Revelation chapter 10 is where we're at. Revelation 10. I'm going to read the whole, the whole chapter, uh, and then we'll do a little review and deal with the text at hand. So Revelation 10, uh, John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head and his face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he calls out with a loud voice like a lion roaring, right? When he called out, the seven thunders sounded. All right, so already... Don't you think? It's like, what in the world is happening? Something sci-fi is going on, right? Uh, verse uh, 4, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders have said, and don't write it down, John. And the angel, whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land, raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever. Who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay, but that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard uh, from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation chapter 10. Now you read that, I don't know about you, but even I initially, I'm like, I jump into chapter 10, I'm like, oh my goodness, this, this Sunday's going to be a doozy, right? So we'll get to that in just a moment, but first a little bit of review. If you remember, the book of Revelation is kind of categorized into three cycles of seven. Uh, and once again, this is apocalyptic imagery. It's all images. As one said, it's like a parade of images that is being read before you. It's supposed to kind of like mess with your attention. You're supposed to sit back and be like, man, what in the world is happening? But it all has meaning. These images just aren't pulled out of nowhere, a grab bag of images, and, and John's just saying, yeah, I'm seeing all this weird stuff. It's actually images that are borrowed from, old from the Old Testament. So when we see these images... It points us back to the Old Testament, and when we go back to the Old Testament, suddenly it shines meaning 
on exactly what John is saying. It's the beauty of the genre of apocalyptic literature. So it's broken down once again in the three cycles of seven. We have the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, and the bowl judgments. Now, some will say, we'll look at these judgments and we'll say it's a chronological experience. You're just going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing until the day of the Lord, right? So a lot of folks want to make it chronological, and there's problems with that. You can't just say, oh, the seals happen first, then the trumpets happen next, then the bowls happen after that, uh, because they will all end with the final day of judgment, the day of the Lord, right? So you don't have three days of the Lord, as Scripture would say. We know there's going to be one final day of judgment. So... The seals, trumpets, and bowls aren't necessarily in this perfect chronological order. As some would say, uh, when it comes to apocalyptic literature, there are vista views. Right? Have you ever gone up on, you know, done a little hiking and you go up and you overlook a valley and you can see just miles and miles and miles away? Many, many understand apocalyptic literature that as the prophet is writing, he's writing down kind of the mountain peak moments. He's seeing these mountain peaks. It's not necessarily intended to be chronological. He's not mapping out like Google Maps where it gives you all along the, the direction. You know exactly what's happening next. It's probably not that. It's more of a vista view. He's just seeing the mountain peaks and not necessarily seeing the order and the distance between it all. So most likely when it comes to how the book of Revelation is structured, we're not talking about hard and fast chronology. Others would then say that each one of these sections of seven are just different perspectives. They're just different camera angles on the same kind of situations. Um, all leading up then to this one day of the Lord, this one day of judgment. But then even that has problems because we end up with... Um, some time elements in all of this. And, and there, it's, it's organized more than just having three different cameras, although we do get different perspectives from one cycle of seven to the next. I don't know for sure, and there's plenty of scholars that disagree with me and uh, many who would agree with me, but I, I think more so that what we have is uh, a set of, of patterns, the seals and the trumpets and the bulls, and they kind of overlap one another, and sometimes they're referring to the same situations, and sometimes they're not, but they're all resulting in the day of the Lord. So this imagery, once again, is not meant to just be strictly literal and strictly chronological. It's more involved than that. There's going to be different perspectives at play, and there's going to be patterns of the same uh, kind of situations happening just in different ways, all once again leading up to the day of the Lord. Now, with that being said, like, what's the practicality in all of that? Why, why is it so practical that we would have to study through all these goofy images and try to make sense of what John is saying? Well, apocalyptic literature, remember, gives us lenses. And the intention is that we would gain heaven's perspective for our earthly experience. Apocalyptic literature helps us gain heaven's perspective for our earthly experience. It begins to shine a light on 
the tribulation and hardship that we endure in this life. Even through COVID, haven't you stood back and said, what the heck is going on? Probably with a few more expletives, right? What in the world is happening? This world looks, seems broken. It's in disarray. A global pandemic just undoing everything. You watch all of this happen, this tribulation, and that's just the tribulation that's out there, not to mention the stuff in here that you're also dealing with and the situations and circumstances of your immediate life that that you, you sit back and, what in the world is happening? It's like doomsday kind of stuff. Does God even have a hold on this world? And apocalyptic literature is to say, yes. It's to scream at us. That's the whole point of these goofy images. Not to confuse you, but to like grip your attention and grip your imagination and to show you that God has control over our earthly experience. He has not failed. He has not fallen asleep. He is alive. He's at the wheel, sovereign over all, and he's still working his perfect plan out through our earthly mess. Apocalyptic literature helps us gain heaven's perspective for our earthly experience. Also that, once again, that the church, God's people, might actually endure with hope and holiness in Christ. Hope sustains us emotionally in some sense. It's like, okay, God, it's like, you know, you're running the marathon and you, you, you see the sign where it's like, oh man, only like, a mile left after going 25 miles, you know? Only, only one left, right? I can do this. It gives you hope. It gives you this emotional endurance. That's the hope that Jesus gives us when we look at apocalyptic literature. But also, holiness. Don't forget it. We are not to just endure this life, kind of getting by with our own coping mechanisms, being driven by our own feelings and wants and desires, pursuing our own dreams and, and what have you. No. Jesus is saying, yes, may your hope be in me, but also may your holiness be in me. Grow in holiness. This is not an excuse. COVID was not an excuse to unplug from Jesus. Right? With all the tribulation that's going on, it should be pushing you toward him. And that's the point of the book of Revelation. Not to get all, you know, cracking codes and conspiracy theories. It's actually to give you hope and holiness in Jesus. It's to lead you towards this confidence, this enduring holiness in Jesus. All right, so you have Revelation 10 open before you. Here's what I want to quick do is just do a a rundown. Let's review what we just read and try to make some sense out of it. Um, So who's the first figure that shows up in Romans or uh, Revelation 10? You talk to me. This is why we're going we're gonna to do things different. Maybe do a quick little uh, caveat. All right, a mighty angel. Quick caveat. What we saw in Revelations, um, the first seven trumpet seals, is that John pushes the pause button on all the judgment talk. Right? There's this interlude. Remember, there's this question that is posed before us. Who can stand in the day of the Lord? And, and then John, he gives us a break from all the judgment and says, I'll tell you who can stand. And he points to the church 
who's following in the victory of Christ. And, and he says, the church, they can stand. They can stand not because of their own work. They can stand not because of their own doing. They can stand because they're following the one who has overcome Jesus. Right? So John gives us this break after the sixth seal judgment. Guess what he does again? He gives us a break after the sixth trumpet judgment, right? He he gives us a little bit of reprieve. Some we we have even heard from a few folks uh, over the last few weeks, like, man, this is getting like heavy. How much more judgment can we take? It just is getting heavy. But what John is doing is he's slowing us down a little bit to say, hey, let me just encourage your hearts. Part of the reason why I just felt like this morning, I'm gonna pull out the whiteboard, we're gonna do a little more teachy time than preachy time, right? And, and just talk this out together because we need some reprieve just like the text is allowing us to take a little reprieve from all the judgment talk, right? John wants to encourage our hearts. As crazy as this like chapter is, he wants to encourage our hearts. So the first person, who do we see? The, uh, who do we see in the text? All right, well, we, we got this big angel, all right, and uh, describe him. Karen, what's the first thing that describes this angel? Yeah. <laughs> all right, somebody help. Somebody help. What's the first description? All right, he's got a cloud. He, he's got a cloud that is around him. All right, uh, and what else? What's next? Rainbow, so, okay, this is getting a little, uh, like, strange, right? He, he's, he's got a rainbow. Uh, next, boom, his face is like the sun, just beaming bright, right? Beaming bright face. What else do we got? All right, pillars of fire. Uh, let's see if we can do this. All right, fire, fire, fire legs, strange stuff, right? So there he is, fire. All right, he's going to be a little stocky. All right, what else? Anything else? All right, so in one, in one hand, he's holding out a scroll. Have we seen a scroll before already? Yep, right over here, right? He's holding a scroll that has been opened already, all right? Uh, is he doing anything else? Any other descriptions? All right, land and sea. So we, we have, all right, here's a few mountains and, and whatever else. And there, there's your land, and then there is sea. All right? A foot on the land and the sea. And what, what is he doing? What else is he doing? He's roaring, all right? And he's roaring seven what? Seven thunders, all right, seven booms. Now, nowadays, you're hearing late at night all these booms going off, right? It's Philly life right there. Boom, boom. All right, anything else? What is he doing? All right, there, there's going to be a hand raised. Man, Th- this, he's, yes. He's looking a little John Travolta-ish as I'm, as I'm seeing this, you know. Uh, sw- switch those hands up, but you get the idea, right? There he is. And what is he doing with the scroll? 
Wh who does he give it to? All right, to, to John, right? So here's poor John seeing all this stuff. What in the world? And he tells him to do what? Eat it, right? Take it in, and what is going to be the result? All right, sweet and bitter. Now, I just told you that this is supposed to be encouraging. What in the world is happening? Right? You, you stand back and you just think, what, what, what is this even supposed to mean? Strange stuff. Remember, we take the images. They're like hyperlinks. They point us back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament uses these same images and downloads meaning to us so we understand what is actually being said. So you ready to jump into it? What's being said? Once again, what we're looking at is John is trying to serve the seven churches. Remember those first few chapters? This is all for the seven churches. And, and even the seven churches represents the church, more broadly speaking. And so what John is doing is not only encouraging the seven churches, warning them, giving them a heavenly understanding on their earthly experience, but what he's also doing is giving us a little reprieve from the, the judgment language, and he's giving us words of encouragement. He's saying to us, church, here's how you endure well through tribulation. When you go through seasons like we've been through, when we've experienced the, the grand question marks of, man, am, am I going to have a job? Is money going to be coming through? Am I going to be okay? Are my kids going to be okay? And, and all the transitioning that comes with that season, the fear that comes with those kinds of season in the midst of tribulation, and by the way, even for us as Americans, we tend to have it quite light when it comes to the persecution that most of the church throughout the world is going through. We couldn't be meeting like this in many countries of the world. We don't have this liberty. And so once again, whether it's our situations like COVID or just the near like troubles that you're carrying in your own heart and life, John wants to encourage you. And even for the broader church, John would want to encourage the broader church. How do we endure well through tribulation? What John does with this goofy imagery, he gives us three things to remember and two things to do. Three things to remember, two things to do. To do. First, here's what you need to remember according to this image. First, we are to remember that God is unlimited, right? God is unlimited. We, we see this angel and all these descriptions of the angel, and whether it's the cloud or whether it's the rainbow or a face that is shining like the sun or legs that are on fire, these are all references to God himself. So we've already seen, actually, some of these images used to describe Jesus. Jesus has a face shining like the sun, or he has legs, right, in chapter 1, that are like burnished bronze. They're like glowing bronze. Pretty basic, right? Also, then we see a rainbow that describes the throne room. It's God language. We see the cloud as a reference to the throne room as well. But all of these images, remember, point us back to the Old Testament. Where, when does a cloud lead God's people? 
What? Yeah, when Moses, in the, in the Exodus account, we see a cloud leading God's people. Where do we see a rainbow? Noah. Noah, right? It's the promise of God's faithfulness that he won't be bringing worldwide judgment like that again, right? So you have all of Jesus, again, is described with the, the sun shining, and these very descriptors are used in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel to speak of God. Now the question is, who's this dude? He's being described as God himself, but he's referred to as a mighty angel. So the question is, what is happening here? And the idea is this, that this angel has come from God's presence. He's come from the throne room. He's emanating something of the very glory of God. You remember Moses, he comes off the mountain, his face was what? It's shining, right? It's shining. Why? Yeah, because he had encountered God. In a real way, this angel, this mighty angel, is, is most like he, had, he has been in the very presence of God, and now as he comes down, as the text says, and John sees it, he is carrying something of the manifest presence of God with him. He is carrying something of the radiance of God's glory with him, all to recognize that he is one who has come directly from God himself. He's a representative of the throne room. He's a representative of God himself. But then notice, not only is he described as one who is coming directly from God, he's a representative from God, but he's, his feet. His feet are on the land and the sea. To have your feet on anything is to demonstrate authority. Right? So uh, I grew up so many years in, in Richmond, Virginia, and the Virginia flag has virtue, goddess virtue, standing over the tyrant with her foot on the neck of the tyrant. Right? It's all to demonstrate authority. Right? It's all to, to, to demonstrate that there is one who will conquer. He'll put his feet over everything. And it's to demonstrate the authority of God himself, that there is no corner of the cosmos over which God does not have rule and power and authority. There is no one who can rival him. Although we've seen last week, if you remember, the enemy is at work, isn't he? He's even, God is even letting him have a little bit of leash to come and torment the world. But we are reminded in this text, church, right? We're reminded as we endure tribulation and hardship and even the temptations of the enemy and the schemes that he would uh, work at us, we're reminded that God ultimately is sovereign over all. He is unlimited in his sovereignty. So this angel demonstrates not only that he is a representative of God, but he demonstrates the very power and authority of God, that it is unlimited. God is unlimited, right? Hold that thought, because he moves on, right? He moves on, and we see then that seven thunders are proclaimed. And what does God then say to John? What does he say to John about these seven thunders? All right, seal it up. Don't write it down. John, you've been writing everything down. Don't write this down. 
Don't write the thunders down. And commentators disagree over exactly what's going on there. Uh, but most likely, God is not canceling another set of judgments. Many people think, oh, seven more thunders. God is just going to bring more and more judgment. And that's not necessarily the case. The case is that Daniel is, or, uh, John is just not to write it down. In fact, it's similar to Daniel. Daniel is told by God, hey, seal it up. It's not for now. It's for later, right? And the whole point then for us is to recognize that there are going to be things throughout our experience here on earth that we will not understand. There will be things kept from us. There will be things that happen, even happen to us, that we are left without any true understanding of what it's all about. God is saying to John, seal it up. It's not for you to know these things. And so we want to know, don't we? We want to have all our questions answered. The why question is the biggest answer. When everything goes wrong, God, why, 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 why? And it's oftentimes not a bad thing for God to not give us all the answers. Why? Because he wants us to trust him. He wants us to not trust his information, but to trust him. Get it? And once again, his, as he warns, his thoughts are way higher than our thoughts. We couldn't comprehend all that is there in his, in his purposes and his plans. And so he's saying, hey, it's not for you to know. It's actually okay for you to be limited in your understanding. Even though heaven's perspective is to be brought to our earthly experience, only part of heaven's perspective is being brought to our earthly experience. You need to be good with living in mystery. But you never have to live in mystery apart from God. God gives us his presence. He doesn't always answer our questions. And so that's the point here. These seven thunders are sealed up. Where God is unlimited, sovereign over all, we are limited in our perspective. Now, what happens next? A hand is raised to heaven, right? And the angel swears. He makes an oath, right? And, 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 and what does he make an oath about? Did you catch it? What does the angel make an oath about? No more delay. All right, just, just catch it for a moment. We are limited. We don't have all the answers to what's going on. God is unlimited, sovereign, and powerful over all. And as the sovereign, powerful one, he is not delaying. That's the idea. We're limited. God is unlimited. And he will not delay to fulfill his purposes and promises in our life. Is that not something of good news in the midst of tribulation? God is saying, I'm not going to delay. I'm not just going to let... Judgments, 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 judgment. I'm not going to let this world completely spin out in disaster and chaos. I will bring it to a final uh, point of completion. I will make all things new one day. We, we know that the book of Revelation is going there. Well, there's 
Tears, as we sung, will be wiped away and everything will be made new. God is saying, I will not delay. Now, that's not only to hit you in the fact that there will be an end to our suffering and tribulation. That's one comfort to take away. This crazy world will not last forever. The tribulation has an expiration date. God has his hand on it. He will bring all things to a final day of completion. Our suffering will end one day. But even with that, the idea is that God is going to faithfully be at work all the way through our crises and difficulties up until the day that he makes all things new. Do you see? He won't delay. He's he's not going to stand back from our immediate circumstances, and he's not going to stand back from the ultimate experience of seeing all things made new one day. He won't delay. And and what's the oath or the the promise made that it's based on? What's the promise based on? Do you catch it? The promise is based on what? He swears an oath by... All right, announced by the servants of the prophets. Yep. Just as God gave the revelation, he's going to fulfill it. He lived, the one who lives forever. The, the, the oath that is made is not just some random, hey, I promise to be there, you know, like we often do with one another. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll show up next week at such and such a time. And, you know, it, it's like we may show up or maybe a late thing and life gets in the way and, and we, we're not prompt. Right? That is not what is happening here. God is saying, based upon my very character, that I am the one who lives forever and ever, that I have authority over everything that has been made. Based upon my unlimitedness, I will surely not delay. That his promises are based upon himself. Right? He won't delay based upon his own. He, it's not, in other words, he's saying either I, I will fulfill it or I'm not God. That's as strong as the language is. As the one who is Yahweh, he is self-sustaining, where we have to borrow breath and life from everything, where we need nourishment on a daily basis. We are not self-sustaining, right? We need other things to sustain us. God is saying, I am the one who is self-sustaining. I am life. And based upon who I am, the character of who I am, I will certainly not delay. I will certainly be faithful to you all through the process of time until the final time, the day of the Lord, where all things will be made new. That's encouragement for a church under trial, right? Where we are feeling the pressures of life, we can know, don't forget, God is in control. He is unlimited. Are we limited? Yes. We don't see everything the way we should. We feel the pains in our body. We feel the grief within our heart. We feel it. But he will not delay. He will be faithful to us. And by the way, even as Larry mentioned earlier, when Jesus went to that cross, He went to that cross, yes, to deal with the issues of our sin, but he went to that cross ultimately to ensure that all things will be worked out for his intended purposes. 
He purchased, if you will, the right to make all things new. That's the cross. And so when God makes this kind of pronouncement, this representative of heaven makes this kind of announcement based upon God, God is saying, hey, based upon my own character, based upon what I've already done, I will not delay. I will be faithful to you, and my faithfulness has already been incredibly demonstrated through the cross itself. I see you. I know your pain. I know your hurt. And I aim to carry you through. That's the whole point. Now, one final thing before we transition to the final uh, stuff is these images of a cloud and a rainbow and sun shining, you know, um, these are all images that are to actually be comforting images. The cloud faithfully led God's people through the wilderness experience, right? The rainbow was God's faithful promise. He wouldn't bring that judgment. The sun shining is, is to depict that God will be light for us in moments of darkness. Folks, we can know based upon the oath of heaven, right, that all who God is in his promises will be faithfully rendered. He will lead us and never fail us like the cloud that led his people. His promises will be a banner over us like, like that rainbow communicated his promises to us. His face will shine. It'll light the way. His feet, those pillars, right, of bronze, these pillars of fire, will ultimately bring justice to all our injustices until we are finally brought safely home. It's the stuff we were singing about earlier. It's just exactly that stuff. God will be faithful. We are limited. God is unlimited but he will not delay his purposes. He will be faithful to us. All right, so those are the three things you need to remember. We're limited, God's unlimited, and he won't delay. Finally then, two things for us to do as a church. If we're gonna endure well through tribulation, kind of like you know, swim through the, the riptide of the chaos of this world and do it well and do it so that we succeed, there are two things for us to do. Uh, the angel gives John the what? The scroll. And he says what? Eat it, John. Eat it. John, you're, you're a prophet. Come on, man. It's time to eat the scroll, which is strange, right? Chowing down paper, you know, probably takes you back to, you know, K5 days, you know, <laughs> chugging the glue in the, in the paper. It's strange. But it's actually, once again, it takes us back to the Old Testament. Who's told to eat the scroll but Ezekiel? The angel comes to Ezekiel and says, Here, here's God's word, I want you to eat it. And he actually says, it's going to be sweet to your taste. And later on, as Ezekiel actually considers what he's supposed to do after he's eaten it, he says, oh, it's, it's bitter. Now it's bitter. And what we have is just a repeat of the same thing. Now John is told to eat the scroll, and the idea of eating the scroll is to take in God's word. It's to take it in. And it's going to be sweet to your taste, but it's going to be bitter. When it comes to the church, have we been given a word from the Lord? Right? We've been given his word. And in a real way, even Jesus will say, this is to be eaten. Right? 
It's to be ingested. It's to be taken in spiritually. You're not to live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What we have in this scroll that has been opened is the word of God. And John is intended to take it in, to eat it. And it's going to be sweet. Why? Why is it going to be sweet? Well, God's communicating his truths to us, but it's going to come with bitterness. Why? Because, well, remember Hebrews 4 says that his word kind of dices down to the depths of who we are and lays us bare. It actually exposes our unbelief and our hardness of heart. So in some sense, sometimes this word is going to be bitter because it's going to get us. It's intended to get us. But also, it's going to be bitter because you'll look at a world and know that they will suffer judgment should they not repent and turn to Christ. It's bitter in that sense. It's sweet because it tells us who our God is. It reveals to us who he is. It gives us promises of who he is. But it's also bitter because sometimes it challenges our own hearts and it oftentimes reminds us that those in this world who don't know Christ will suffer judgment. It's sweet and it's bitter. But the call then for the church is to eat the word, just like John. It's like, John, eat this thing. Take it in. Take in a balanced diet, if you will. Don't just take the sweet. One of the reasons why we're going through Revelation, and Revelation is so weird and odd and strange, the reason why we're going through it is because God says preach the whole counsel of God. In other words, just don't don't use my word as like a little grab bag. You know, just grab in there. I don't like that word. Get that thing out of here. Let me find one that's really sweet for me. That is not the way his word is to work in our lives. The way his word is to work in our lives is that we would take it all in, both the sweet and the bitter, to have a balanced diet, if you will. You can't just live on sweets, can you? You won't live long. You can go for a little while before you burn out. Right? You need a balanced diet of the bitter and the sweet. You need, that's why even the Old Testament prophets, it's like, man, it's like chapter after chapter after chapter of judgment. I don't want to read that stuff. I come into my devotions, and oh, there, there, there I am. And it's like chapter after chapter of judgment. And I'm just like, I do not want to read all of this stuff. How, like, how many failures God's people have gone through, and now how many judgments God's brought. And it's just like, it's, it's undoing. But it's intended to be good for the diet of our souls, right? That it would be, it would sober us. That it wouldn't just give me what I want to hear in the moment, but it would give me truth that actually sobers my heart and warns me from the very things that oftentimes with my jacked up heart, I'm not seeing. And I need to be warned when I don't think I need to be warned. You see how it works? We need a balanced diet. We need to eat both the sweet and the bitter. Don't use the Bible as just a a grab bag of sweets, right? John then is told, don't only eat the word, but what else? Verse 11. What's he supposed to do? Prophesy, man. Prophesy. This is good charismatic language, right? Prophesy that thing. Simply put, go speak it. Right? Now, John has a specific message that he is supposed to take to the nations, right? The nations and languages. 
Um, he has a specific commission. It's no different for the church, though. We have a specific commission. As Jesus would say in Matthew 28, go make disciples of all nations, right? As Acts chapter 1, verse 8 would say, the Holy's gonna, Holy Spirit's going to come with power upon you, and you're to be my witnesses, right? You're, you're to go and proclaim. You're go and speak the word that you've ingested. Now, that has different applications. We need that in discipleship for one another. Just to, just to say it, pastors aren't kind of the conduit of discipleship. Right? Pastors are not the one who do all of the work of the ministry. Right? It is to be the church who does the work of the ministry as pastors do their job to lead and shepherd along. We can't, James and I can't, we can't disciple everyone. We just can't. And it's not intended to be that way. And, I, and I'd encourage, there, there's like several of you that I just want to like put you up here as trophies. Just like, yes, you're doing it. You're doing it. You're reaching out to one another. We are to take the word in, have a balanced diet. So I have something to speak and to give away that would bring encouragement to one another. It's for us to take in the word and to proclaim it to one another. So it's something that is appetizing and encouraging and builds you up or warns you or exhorts you, right? It, it, it's, it's there so that we would grow together. We gotta speak the word for our growth together as a church. But of course, this goes beyond the immediate. We're to share the gospel with others. And that's specifically what John is commissioned to do. Go to the nations and languages. And notice, and kings. That is a strange insert. We always hear about, you know, nations, tongues, and languages, and that, that list. But now he inserts kings in verse 11. And you're saying, what in the world? Why, why kings? Why do you throw kings in there? And it probably is a reference to the book of Acts. That as you go and proclaim the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, and you proclaim it clearly with the judgment that is inevitably entailed, you will be persecuted. You run the risk of being pushed away. You run the risk of the cancel culture. You run the risk of being shut up. But what you also run the risk of is maybe that seed of the gospel will produce fruit in their life. That is a worthy risk. I may be persecuted, but this person may have their eyes open to the beauty and wonder of Jesus. So we'll take that risk. And in the book of Acts, the apostles, the disciples, they took that risk. Where did they end up oftentimes as those who were persecuted? They ended up before kings. There they are again and again. They're before kings. Right? They share this gospel message and they are brought to the authorities and, and silence these guys. They need to be silenced. And it gives them an, an, a platform to even proclaim the gospel, the truth of Jesus, to the kings. All to say, folks, we have been commissioned. And we have different levels of this, whether it's in our own parenting, whether it's within the church body itself. We get to take in the word, speak the word, but don't neglect don't neglect the fact that we are called beyond these walls. We're 
called beyond our own family. We're called beyond these relationships to share the gospel with others. And it will inevitably come with risk. So, once again, this is how the church endures well. It has to remember that God is unlimited. We are limited. God's not going to delay. He's going to be faithful to us. But as one who's going to be faithful to us, let's run the risk, right? Let's take in the word faithfully, but give it out faithfully, right? Speak the word faithfully for the one who will be faithful to us. Yeah, let's end there. I'm going to ask Tom to come. I'm just going to pray. I've asked Tom to come and just kind of lead us in a final kind of word of, of application. And musicians, you guys can come as well. So God, we, we pray even right now that you would help us endure well. Where there is chaos and there is grief, Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep in mind just how unlimited and faithful you are to us. Thank you that you've given us a role then in seeing all things made new as well. God, thank you that you have called us to feast on your word and you've called us to proclaim it. God, we pray that you would help us to that end by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, Stan put out... Oh, all right, all right. Come on, man. Stan put out the request to bring a word of application, and I said, yeah, great. And then I read Revelation 10. Thanks for that. However, God, I, I, I do think I was laid on my heart the, the similar direction to uh, what we heard here today. I think there's a very specific thing that God has laid on my heart to, to share with you. This is general thought, whereas God cares deeply, intimately about the bitterness in our life, the trials. He, he's not disinterested. He we're even told in the word that he, he feels that personally. But still, his mission trumps that. Right? But that's why Revelation 10 ends with the exhortation to go prophesy that. Despite all the stuff, despite all the things that are happening. This is the bottom line. This is the supreme goal. This is the mountaintop. My mission, even though I care deeply about what's going on in your life and it's real and it hurts, my mission trumps that. So what gets in the way of that a lot of times is I think we force God or we want to force God or we challenge God to say, cool, well, at least make sense of that. Right? And I think the way the world would um, describe this is, I need closure. Yeah. Well, if you've had closure in your life on some things, you probably found out that it, it ain't that it ain't all that it's cracked up to be. <laughs> because closure is truth, and sometimes truth is just not pleasant 
So how do we how do we navigate that? And I think that's the way it's been illustrated here helps us to, to do this. I think God is saying to us, look, in the midst of all that's going on in your life, in the midst of what I'm calling you to do, let's remember two things. Remember who I am and remember who you are. He is the God who has the, the foot on the land and the foot on the sea. He is the God over the whole world. So he therefore is the God of you as well. And do not think that answers to the trials that you're going through right now are a requirement to do what I still call you to do. Please, that, I'm, not, I'm not preaching at you, I'm preaching with you. Because this is not a guy who's actually figured all this out. And, and, and I think my own family will tell you that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a dude that just, when something's not going right, I gotta figure it out, I gotta get some answers. I argued with my son's t-ball coach one day that no one team had more runs crossed the plate than another. <laughs> so this is this is difficult for me, but it's good truth. And I don't know where that lands for you in actual experience, um, but I know it's landing somewhere for all of us because there's a lot of stuff in life that just ain't good in the moment. But God is saying, listen. I know that. I care deeply about that. Remember who you are. Remember who I am. And let's get the perspective straight. Let's make sure we're, we're both in our right place. So. Amen. I, I hope that helps. Dan, can I ask you to close this out in prayer before we get? Do you want me
find a few and chapter 15 and verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, and I think this is applicable to the, uh, the passage that we were just in, my brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Amen. 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 Great Father's Day. 